draping your windshields and bringing the church into this auditorium. This morning, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors. Um, one more additional announcement. After this service, right after this service, we're actually going to have a meet Crosspoint lunch. So if you're new, uh, you want to learn more about the church, ask questions that you may have, uh, get an idea of where, where we're going, what we're about as a church, um, or you just want free pizza and you're new uh, and you haven't done that with us, stick around. Uh, it'll be in the room right behind the soundboard. We'd love to have you join us for that. Um, I don't know what the last few days have looked like for you guys. My guess would be uh, that, that you've experienced some sort of wintry wonder over the last couple days, maybe built some, some dirty snowmen in your yard, uh, made some snow angels, maybe even a snow cone. I don't know what that's looked like for you. Uh, for me, uh, what everyone else was describing as a, a winter wonderland was being described as inclement weather where I was, uh, which was down in Orlando trying to get a flight back to Atlanta on Friday. That did not happen. The flight got canceled. Thankfully, I was able to hop onto a 15-passenger van with a traveling polka band, and so made it back for Christmas. Uh, If you didn't get that cultural reference, come see me after the service, and we can talk about what repentance looks like for you in your life. Um, No, I didn't go that far, but I did have to rent a car and and drive, uh, break it up over two days to drive from Orlando back to Atlanta, flying by the seat of my pants, running on fumes this morning. I have no idea of half the things that may come out of my mouth today, so you can, you can pray for me. Um, I even threw on the Fred, uh, Fred Rogers cardigan this morning to try to get some semblance of coziness. This is my comfy pants for the morning, so uh, if this look doesn't work for you, sorry. All the hipsters in the room can be excited, though, uh, about this monocolored dream coat that I have on. Um, If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little difficult to track with, please take that, that Bible as the church's early Christmas present to you. As you're opening up to Hebrews chapter nine, uh, if you are new, we, we're currently working our way through the book of Hebrews from start to finish. So if you come back next week, and I hope you do, uh, what you'll find is we won't be in a different book of the Bible. We're at, we'll actually be picking up where we left off this week as we leave this place. Um, the title of this series Uh, We've declared to be Jesus is greater. And the reason for that series title is that the author of Hebrews goes to to great lengths to show us just how supremely valuable, just how glorious, just how superior the person and work of Jesus Christ truly is. Um, He declares Jesus to be the radiance of the glory of God, uh, the exact imprint of God's nature, the creator and sustainer of all things, superior to the angels, superior to fallen man, superior to Moses. That this book of the Bible really presents us with a, a view of Jesus that would call into question anyone who would declare Jesus to be nothing more than a, a good moral teacher or a, a pithy philosopher sitting around throwing out fortune cookie statements on a hillside to the masses. The, the author of Hebrews declares Jesus to be the perfect and final sacrifice for sin, the, the mediator of a greater covenant with God established in his blood the exalted high priest of heaven who intercedes on behalf of the very ones that he came to die for. So we're meant to, to behold the superior son of God as we open up this book of, of the Bible in a way that, uh, that we find ourselves actually changed, affected by the beholding. And this morning, we're given yet another opportunity to behold Jesus in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. And so my prayer is that each one of us would, would find ourselves beholding the superior son of God and, and would walk away changed. 
Let me pray for us, and we'll, and we'll go ahead and jump into Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 15. God, thank you for gathering us in this place. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the, the grace that is offered to us as we open up your word together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move. I'm grateful this morning that you never run on fumes. You are never scatterbrained. Uh, your very word never returns void. And so I pray that you would be made strong this morning, God, in weakness, that, that we would see you in, in, in your glory, in your grace, in your goodness as we spend time in this glorious chapter of this glorious book of the Bible. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you awaken our slumbering hearts? Um, would you... Uh, Create in us a joy that far surpasses the joy uh, that infused our hearts when we looked out and saw white stuff falling from the sky. God, we love you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So last week, uh, if you were here, I pulled out some really sweet graphics from the 80s, uh, study Bibles. Um, we spent some time taking a detailed look at, at the Old Testament tabernacle and the worship that took place in that very tabernacle. And we saw that, that the tabernacle itself couldn't provide immediate and intimate access to God, nor could the multitude of animal sacrifices that you see when you go back and read the Old Testament truly and fully deal with the sinner's conscience. But Jesus, the author of Hebrews declares, has done both. When, when Jesus died on the cross, uh, the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place in that very Old Testament tabernacle was torn. Um, the, a visible declaration that Jesus is the way back into the very presence of God. That we can confidently come into the presence of God by grace through faith in the, the finished priestly work of Jesus Christ. True intimate accessibility to God. That's what we celebrated last week. We also celebrated full effectiveness with respect to forgiveness and the purifying of our consciousness that comes, uh, consciences that comes in Jesus. That the blood of Jesus is sufficient to absolve us of our guilt. That Jesus was declared guilty in our place so that we might be declared righteous in the eyes of God. That the blood of Jesus is sufficient to take away our shame. That Jesus was shamed in our place so that we might stand unashamed before God. That the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of sacrificial animals. He's the unblemished lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Going back to last week, in the words of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, not all, uh, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That the perfect spotless, sacrificial lamb of God was offered up in order to secure our eternal redemption, as the author of Hebrews says uh, in the earlier parts of chapter 9. So now, as we press on through this chapter, through Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to focus on the sacrificial system, and in doing so, he, he really begins to ramp up the talk about blood and death. In fact, it, it's Chapters like Hebrews 9 that cause many people to view Christianity as a slaughterhouse religion. I mean, after all, we're talking about a lot of bloodshed. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this. He says, during the thousand plus years of the old covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. 
Considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. In fact, uh, during the Passover, uh, there was even a trough that was built that would carry blood away from the temple and down into the Kidron Valley. So you're talking about a waste disposal system just for blood. In response to all the bloodshed, some have chosen to, to abandon the doctrine of, of the atonement altogether. What do, you, what do you do with a God who demands bloodshed? What do you do with a religion that declares at its very center the slaughter of its own God? Those, those are the kind of questions that beg to be answered as we dive into the second part of Hebrews chapter 9. We pick up the story in verse, 9, uh, verse 15. He says this, Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, A mediator's job is to bring two parties together. Most of us can connect those dots. In this case, Jesus is the mediator whose job it is to bring a holy God and a sinful humanity together. Going back to last week, he tore the curtain separating man from God. How did he do so? According to verse 15, a death has occurred. And it's a death that has retroactive power, redeeming people from sins committed in the past. You can read about that in Romans chapter three, verses 25 and 26. The people in the Old Testament were saved just like you and me, by faith. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were not a means of salvation. They were the visible display of believing hearts that acknowledged that sin requires death. Believing hearts that look to the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. That through his death, the author of Hebrews declares that Jesus has secured an eternal inheritance for his people. That all of the promises of God are ours for the taking. um, And that has been secured through the shedding of Jesus' blood. He goes on to make his point by providing us with a, a fairly common illustration in verse 16. He says this. He says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Most all of us in this room understand how a will works. A will is a legal document by which a person expresses uh, his, his or her wishes regarding how they want their property and possessions to be distributed upon their death. In order to receive an inheritance where a will is involved... Someone must die. Once the person leaving their legacy dies, then the inheritance can actually be enjoyed at that point. The gospel, the author of Hebrews says, works the same way. That when Jesus died, he secured all of God's promises for all of God's people. How did Jesus sign the check securing all of those promises of the new covenant? Answer, he signed it in his very own blood. In order to receive an inheritance where a will is involved, there must be a death. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For uh, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you Again, going back to the, the Old Testament, the establishment of the covenant that God made with the Israelites in Moses' day was a bloody affair. And so was the inauguration going back to last week of worship in the tabernacle. Verse 21 says, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. That, that gloriously beautiful house of worship that we talked about last week was covered in blood. 
And so were the beautiful symbolic furnishings that filled that very tabernacle. What's with all the bloodshed? Why is the Bible filled with such vivid displays of violence? What do you do with that? Verse 22 is where we get a little bit of a glimpse of what God's up to. Where where he says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Um, the, the word blood is used six times in verses 18 through 22. Anytime you see a word used six times in that short of a span, you're probably looking at the big E on the eye chart, right? The shedding of blood was part and parcel of what it meant to be God's people. In fact, were it not for financial hardships among the Israelites, the language would be even more comprehensive than it actually is. Um, it says that almost everything is purified with blood. The reason that there's not a comprehensive everything in that verse is because some people couldn't afford animal sacrifices. So they would bring an offering of flour because of its affordability. But the principle was still there. Atonement for sin in the giving of a life. Uh, Leviticus 17.11 says it this way. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, God says. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why is blood required for the forgiveness of sins? Well, the Bible teaches that that sin is costly and so is forgiveness. Going back to the garden in Genesis 3, man's rebellion against God. Our first parents committed cosmic treason against their very maker, an infinitely heinous crime against an infinitely holy God, deserving of an infinitely horrific punishment. That for God to, we talk about this all the time around here, for God to sweep sins under the rug would make him unfit to sit on the bench. God's character was at stake, and so he sentenced the guilty parties. And in some sense, man truly brought the sentence upon upon ourselves, right? Think about this. What happens when you turn away from the true source of life, God himself? You get death. Death is a more than appropriate sentence for the crime of turning away from the true source of life. Sin entered the world, and suffering and death followed suit. Death was the punishment for covenant disobedience. Yet, even in the sentencing, God didn't leave man without hope. Remember what God provided Adam and Eve um, in their moment of greatest guilt and shame? Animal skins to cover themselves with, right? Where did those skins come from? How do you come up with animal skins? They don't just fall from the sky, right? Answer, you, you sacrifice an animal, The shedding of blood, the offering up of a life, a substitute sacrifice. Again, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That God was was foreshadowing not only the Old Testament sacrificial system, but ultimately Jesus, our sin-bearing sacrifice. That in the same garden where man rebelled against God and brought death upon himself, God promised that he would send a hero to rescue his people from Satan, sin, and death. The author of Hebrews is connecting all of those dots here in chapter 9. All of those animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant were reminders that the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died the greatest death the world has ever known in our place, bearing sin's curse. Verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, if we're gonna get into heaven, the better tabernacle, there's gotta be a better sacrifice than those millions of sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and temple so long ago. 
Verse 24, he says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We've talked about this over and over again. It's a recurring theme in the book of Hebrews that Jesus didn't enter the second more sacred room of the earthly tabernacle. He entered into the true holy of holies, heaven itself. He's our constant advocate, which is why we have beautiful verses like Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's present tense language. Or how about 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That on the basis of his shed blood, Jesus declares, that one's mine, Father. Her name is graven on my hands. And, and that one's mine too. I, burst in, I bore sin's curse for him as well. But it's not as if Jesus continues to, to be offered over and over again as a sacrifice. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. If you go on to verse 25, he says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That if Jesus had to offer himself up every time one of God's people sinned, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, the author of Hebrews is saying, since the very first act of rebellion in a garden so very long ago. But what the author of Hebrews is, is arguing is that Jesus doesn't keep dying every year. His death is sufficient once for all. He has put away all of our sin. It is finished. When Jesus said that, he meant it. His blood is sufficient to cover all of your sin, past, present, and future. You sit with that long enough, it just might uh, overwhelm your heart. There's nothing you have done that can make God love you less. Nothing you could do that would make God love you more. Doesn't that deserve a hallelujah? I mean, just in case you're not encouraged yet, look, look at how he goes on to finish out this chapter, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That just as every one of us is appointed to die and stand before their maker one day, so following that, we will deal with the reality of what we've brought upon ourselves in terms of sin. We will either attempt to bring a record of self-atonement before God, or we will bring the record of Jesus before God. Apart from Jesus, that is not a moment that any of us should be super excited about. Bringing your own attempts at atoning for sin uh, before the living God will only leave you short of the mark because you have to deal with that question, how good is good enough? How do you know when you've crossed the threshold so that you can feel good about what you're bringing before a perfect and holy God? The beauty of the gospel, and the author of Hebrews has been saying this for nine chapters now, is that Jesus came to take our judgment for sin upon himself. And when he returns, there will be no judgment for those who are in Christ, but only salvation. Going back to the 
the picture of the high priest going into the most holy place in the tabernacle on the day of atonement. You can just imagine the people watching the high priest go in, wondering if he would return. You know, would he make it out alive, this go around? How's this thing gonna go? As he exited the tabernacle and, and would actually come back into view of the people, you can just imagine the relief that they would have felt, knowing that the priest's offering had been accepted by God. Like Israel waited for the appearance of the high priest, so we are to eagerly wait for the appearance of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says in verse 28. That when we see Jesus at his second coming, it will not be to deal with sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's already dealt with your sin. It will be to make everything sad, untrue for those who are his. I love the way the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. It says this, regardless of our successes and failures and our accomplishments or lack of them, if we know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he will surely come back for us, bringing the final installment of our great salvation. And so I think one of the questions for us this morning as we gather in this place is this, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? And not the kind of waiting that says, come Lord Jesus, but, but just hit the brakes on that until I get married. Or come Lord Jesus, but, but hit the brakes on that until I have kids. Or come Lord Jesus, but hit the brakes on that until I see my kids graduate from high school and get married themselves and have kids. Or come Lord Jesus, but, but hit the brakes on that until I get a few years of retirement under my belt. No, it's an eager waiting. And it's an eager waiting for a person, not an eager waiting for eternal golf or the absence of pain or sweet eternal lodging that is to exist in the new heaven and earth. Though there are some glorious blessings that are to come in that day when Jesus returns to set all things right. But the gospel is ultimately, and I think the author of Hebrews argues this well through that, the way he ends this chapter, it's ultimately about reconciling us to a person whom we eagerly wait for. I bring out this quote maybe about once a year just to keep us on the beaten path of the gospel. John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, great book. I would commend that to you to read if you've never read it before. He says this. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus were not there? He goes on to say, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, he says. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. The greatest gift of the gospel is God himself. Through his shed blood, Jesus has overcome every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. Coming back to that question I posed earlier, I think this is a significant question to deal with in a passage like this. Why the need for shed blood? Have you ever thought about that question before? We just kind of pass right over that, like Jesus died for my sins. He spilled his blood for my sins. Why? Why the need for shed blood? Why verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? I mean, we're talking about the God whose words are so powerful that, 
He spoke stars into existence out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, as the theologians refer to it. Why could that same God not have spoken the words, I forgive you, and that have held the power of forgiveness in and of itself? I think that's a really good question. What do you do with that? Why did Jesus have to die? Of course, God would give me that question when I'm running on fumes. I'll give you a few thoughts in response to that question. Not comprehensive. Uh, You can pick it apart. If you come up with something better, I'd love to hear it because I'd just love to build this argument and make it better than than it is. But let me just give you a few thoughts as to why the need for shed blood. Number one, and I think this one in and of itself could, could answer the argument irrefutably, because God said so. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In God's word, God tells us that this is true. And God is either honest or he's a liar. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I haven't gone there in a while, so I'll go there this morning. Um, there was what was known in the land of Narnia as the deep magic. The deep magic declared that if you're guilty of treason, your life must be forfeited to the white witch. Now, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that the last thing you want to happen is to have your life forfeited to the white witch. And what we find as we read that story is that Edmund, one of the four kids who made his way into Narnia through that magical wardrobe, was guilty of treason. And so Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, chose to give his life on behalf of Edmund. And, and as that scene unfolds, the white witch is incredibly happy. She, she'd much rather take the life of Aslan, the, the glorious lion, the king of, of Narnia, rather than the, this puny, scrawny little boy who had committed this act of treason. She thought she had won. Aslan was ultimately sacrificed on what was known as the stone table. However, if you continue to read the story, you you know how the story goes. It takes an unexpected twist as Aslan rises from the dead. And what we're told in chapter 15 as Aslan is describing what's known as the deeper magic, he says this. He says, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That Before the creation of the land of Narnia, there was a plan to redeem traitors through the sacrificial death of a sinless substitute. Sound familiar? C.S. Lewis knew exactly what he was doing there. If you look at, if you read Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, which I know you all uh, did for your quiet time this morning, we're told this, we're told, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, it being the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That according to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, there was a book that existed before anything that was made was made. And the name of that book was the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Another perfectly acceptable title to that book, the book of life of Jesus who bled and died. God gets to define the deeper magic. God gets to define what it takes for sinful human beings to approach him in his holiness. And God determined before the foundation of the world that the shedding of blood was the plan. God determined before the foundation of the world that sinners could approach him in his holiness through the shed blood of Jesus as our perfect 
sinless sacrifice. So in one sense, the answer to that question, why would Jesus have to die? Why the shedding of blood? Because God said so and God gets to define what it takes to reconcile us as sinners to himself. But I think there are some, some other compelling arguments that, that come underneath that one as uh, maybe the, the most critical. Let me give you some more. Um, secondly, the consequence suits the action. Again, mentioned this earlier. If sin is turning away from God and if God is the true source of life, then to sin is to turn away from life. And to turn away from life is to turn toward death. So death, with which the shedding of blood is deeply associated, is actually the most sensible consequence for sin that there could possibly be. Let me just give you a few more. Um, It's the perfect reversal of the fall. It's another, another reason for the shedding of blood. Perfect reversal of the fall. If you think about it, Jesus, our substitute, is actually the perfect reversal of what happened in the garden when you read the story of man's first rebellion in Genesis 3. Uh, J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That God would put himself in the place of sinners is the perfect reversal of sinners attempting to put themselves in the place of God. Let me give you a couple more. Number four, real forgiveness is always costly. I mean, think about that. We can come at this from a number of angles, which, by the way, I'm just ripping off um, Tim Keller's The Reason for God and also Keller's King's Cross. So you can read either one of those books and get a better, more comprehensive argument of these last two points that I'm gonna make. Real forgiveness is always costly. If you think about it from a purely economic perspective, you come over to my house, break one of our lamps. Um, if we're going to make good on the damages, if there's gonna be a making good on the damages, it's either gonna be by way of you paying that cost or me paying that cost on your behalf. Either way, someone has to bear the burden of the cost. Now expand that thinking out to, uh, further to issues having to do with, with the damaging of your reputation or your happiness by other people. Similarly, you can do one of two things. You can hope that those who have wronged you pay for their crimes. You can wish them ill will. You can confront them. You can talk about them behind their back, trashing their reputation, and all of those things are ways of attempting to make them pay the debt, ways of making people bear the burden of the cost for wronging us. But, but the problem with that option is it actually causes us, to, causes us to become more self-absorbed, more bitter, more harsh, more spiteful. And what we find is that the evil doesn't disappear, but it actually grows. It actually spreads when we live our lives that way. The other option is to forgive those who wrong us, but we all know that it's not as if that that comes easily, right, or without cost. There's nothing um, easy about real forgiveness. It's, It's a form of suffering to know that you've been wronged by someone, but that the person who wronged you is not gonna pay for the wrongdoing. It's agonizing to know that you're foregoing the balancing of the scales, so to speak. In a sense, you're absorbing the debt. You're absorbing the cost yourself. The gospel is the good news that Jesus chose to absorb the cost of our sin on our behalf. Keller says it this way. He says, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it so you can reach out in love to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of the sin yourself. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. 
Should it surprise us then, he says, that when God determined to forgive us rather than punish us for all the ways we have wronged him and one another, that he went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ and died there. On the cross, we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. And so he goes on to say, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. Real forgiveness is costly. We experience it every time we extend forgiveness to other people. In Christ, God has absorbed the cost of our sin on our behalf. Last reason that I would say why the need for shed blood is this. Real love always involves a personal exchange of some sort. I mean, if you've ever attempted to care for someone in a time of need, you understand that it either requires that you share in that person's burden or that you take it fully upon yourself. In order to care for someone uh, in your life who's financially burdened, your finances have to go down in order for their finances to go up, right? That's just uh, good math. In order to care for someone in a season of emotional distress, if you've ever been there, you know that, that you're gonna have to deal with some emotional draining in order to lift that person up out of the ashes. Think about parenting. In order to help your kids become fully functioning members of society, you have to give up some of your independence, some of your freedom, some of your comfort. And if you refuse to relinquish at least some of your independence, some of your freedom, some of your comfort, you'll actually hinder the development of your children and set them up for failure. Again, I quote Keller. He says this, All life-changing love toward people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weaknesses flow toward you as your strengths flow toward them. If that is true, he says, how can God be a God of love if he does not become personally involved in suffering the same violence, oppression, grief, weakness, and pain that we experience? The answer to that question is twofold. First, God can't. Second, only one major world religion even claims that God does. We see it in movies all the time, this idea of substitutional sacrifice, and it compels us. Katniss volunteering as tribute so that her sister might live. Uh, Bruce Willis's character at the end of Armageddon giving his life so that everyone else on planet Earth might, might live. Bing Bong sacrificing himself so that joy can make it out of the pit of despair. And I know that most of you in this room have cried when you watch those scenes in movies. There's this theme of redemption through sacrifice threaded into the tapestry of our story that we just can't get away from. I mean, even Hollywood embraces it. One who would give his or her life so that others might live. The natural consequence of man turning away from God, the source of life, is death. And death is equated with the shedding of blood. The gospel is Jesus saying, I'll bear sin's curse of death. I'll shed my blood in your place. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so I would say this simply, as we prepare to move forward in our service, can we just praise God for the deeper magic that he declared before the foundation of the world? That sin might not go unpunished and yet sinners might be forgiven? I mean, the gospel is quite amazing. As we... As we move forward into our service, we're going to move into a time of uh, 
the receiving of communion, singing, prayer, all of those things infused together throughout the remainder of our time together. And so uh, if you're a Christian, from the time I step off of this stage to the time we close out this service, um, the bread and the cup are for you. You're invited to come when you're prepared to do so and take the bread uh, representing the broken body of Jesus and, and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Um, there will be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with or for you if that's something that, that you would like to do. Um, I just invite you before you come and receive of the elements this morning um, to, um, to ask God to do in your heart Uh, Those things that have happened in your heart when you've watched those compelling scenes in movies that have to do with uh, substitutionary sacrifice that uh, that you would ask God to yet again move your heart for the for the dozenth time, for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, for the ten thousandth time.